listening to Real Presence Radio. In the next hour, we have Dr. Jan George with us from Sacred Heart Productions, teaching on the New Testament letters. Dr. George, a retired university teacher of literature, has a Master of Theology from the University of Dallas. She is with us today covering Romans chapter 5 and chapter 6, which include the following two topics. The first Adam, the last Adam, and second, baptism, death to sin, and life in Christ. Tune in at this time each week when Dr. George will be walking us through the New Testament letters from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study Program, produced by Sacred Heart Productions. Accompanying lessons for each week can be found online at sacredheartproductions.org, along with lessons and study guides for other New Testament books. Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study is designed to help people understand Scripture in light of sacred tradition. All lessons include related questions and relevant readings from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Knowing the Scriptures program is produced by Sacred Heart Productions, whose mission is to proclaim Christ and His love for His Bride, the Church. And now, here is Dr. George speaking about the first Adam, the last Adam. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. In chapters 5 and 6 of St. Paul's letter to the Romans, he speaks about Adam, the first Adam, the first man that God creates, and the new Adam, Jesus Christ. And after he talks about that, in light of original sin, he goes on to speak about the great mystery of baptism. So the two questions of our lesson today deal then with Adam, the first Adam, and the new Adam, and then the sacrament of baptism. In order to understand the mystery of original sin, we must begin by talking about the creation of man and the fact that man occupies a unique place in creation according to God's design. In the first place, man is created in the image and likeness of God. This has profound implications, not only in regard to the order of creation and man as its summit, but also in regard to the order of redemption fulfilled in the person of Christ. Also, man unites in his nature both the spiritual and the material worlds. We make up, we sum up, in essence, the created order in our very being. This is something that science will find impossible to understand, much less believe in, because science can only do what science does within its domain. The mystery transcends the natural order. It is part of the natural order, so there are many things we can understand about it, particularly through faith, faith in divine revelation. But in point of fact, the mystery of man transcends the natural order because he is not only a material being, he is a spiritual being. Man is created as male and female. This is another profound aspect of the mystery of man, 
and one which we shall not go into in this lesson, but it affects a great deal. It has very much to do with what Christ fulfills in the order of redemption and how in the ultimate analysis, as St. Paul says, we are not male and female, that we are one in the person of Jesus Christ. And then finally, God establishes man in his friendship. Man is, exists in personal friendship with God from the very beginning when he is created. Of all the visible creatures on the face of the earth, only man is able to know and love his creator. Now when we say of all the visible creatures, we are speaking of the human person. Human beings are visible creatures. We are body and soul, flesh and spirit. As we've said in other lessons, angels are persons also, but they are purely spiritual persons. They roam about the face of the earth. But we are speaking in this instance of visible creatures. Of all visible creatures on earth, only man is able to know and love his creator. He is the only creature, the only visible creature, that God has willed for his own sake. Now, all persons are made by God and for God. But when we say that man is willed for his own sake, we mean to say that he is not created for the purpose of some other created thing. Man is not created for the purpose of the mountains or the stars or the earth or any of the animals on earth or any of the plants. However, all created things are created for man. Man is the summit of creation. God has placed us within an order and he has made us steward over the order so that we not only can use all things to sustain our life, but also to develop our lives. They become part of sort of the material of our sanctification. And in that, we are to gather all things and direct the whole created order back to God. Everything ultimately finds its end in God. Man, therefore, of all of the living things on earth, is the only living creature, the only living one, the only living created being, the only part of creation that is intended to share in God's own life. This is the fundamental reason for our dignity, that we can know and love God, we are willed for our own sake, and that we are called to share in God's own life. It gives us a dignity which we must say is infinite in nature because that dignity depends upon and is ordered to God himself. To understand the doctrine of original sin, we must always have our gaze fixed upon Christ. In fact, we might say in a certain sense that the doctrine of original sin 
is the reverse side of the good news. The good news that Jesus is the Savior of all men, that all men are in need of salvation, and that God offers the gift of salvation to absolutely all persons. The Church, who has the mind of Christ, has known from the beginning, and she continues to understand deeply the fact that we cannot tamper with the revelation or the doctrine of original sin without undermining the mystery of Jesus Christ. They are so closely connected so that if we make, if we skew any of the truths which God has revealed concerning the original holiness and justice of Adam, the fall and the consequences of the fall, we will end up skewing, distorting, misunderstanding, undermining the mystery of Christ our Savior God. So we begin then by talking about original sin, which St. Paul talks about in chapter 5 here of his letter to the Romans, by first reminding ourselves that the human race forms a unity. This is very important to understand original sin. That from one ancestor, from one man, the first man, God made all the nations to inhabit the earth. This is teaching of the church. Now this too is difficult for science to believe. Science in fact will say no, that's not possible. But there are many things which God has revealed to us as so because he knows that they transcend. Our ability to grasp purely through reason. This is why we must have faith in the Word of God, because He speaks the truth and He helps us understand mysteries which otherwise exceed our capacity to grasp and appreciate. So, what kind of unity is this then? We possess, as the human race, a unity in origin. The origin of all human persons, regardless of when those people are created, when they live on earth, what nation they belong to, the entire human race has its origin in God. We are a unity of nature. All human persons have, possess, the same nature. We have a material body, we are corporal in our existence, and we have a spiritual soul. We also have the same faculties or powers of soul. Being made in the image and likeness of God means that all persons with a human nature have a likeness in that nature. We have a unity in that nature. We have a unity of our immediate end and mission in the world. God has ordained that we live on earth in time and in space, and each person is created for a very particular purpose a particular way in which that person alone is destined to glorify God. But that mission is carried out, that purpose is fulfilled on earth, in whatever time God allots to us on earth. 
So we have a unity of our mission in the world, and we also have a unity of dwelling place, which is Earth. We have a unity in terms of our supernatural end. The end of man, our destiny, our goal, is God, to whom we must all tend. In other words, we must direct ourselves to God. This is why it's so tragic. There's so many in the face of the earth who, even though they know by the natural light of reason that we are created by a great God, our Creator, they refuse to acknowledge Him, think about Him, turn towards Him, try to understand that we have such a dignified life because we have been created by God and destined for the communion of persons in Him. And finally, then, we have a unity of attaining that end. God has ordained that we all attain our end through the same means. Now, it will be in different circumstances and so on. But the means are the same, which means that there is a unity of redemption for all human persons in Christ. We are all saved through one Redeemer, one Savior, and He is Christ. Now, St. Thomas Aquinas, in speaking about the mystery of original sin and its effects upon the whole human race, reiterates divine revelation when he says that the whole human race is in Adam as one body of one man. It's difficult for us to completely understand the transmission of original sin through generation. The fact that Adam and Eve fall at the beginning and all their descendants forever to the end of time are implicated in that price and that price is eternal death because we are created with original sin on our soul. And we struggle to grasp this and yet at the same time we can use the power of reason to help us understand by analogy what takes place. But we need to understand in the first place that from one ancestor, a first man, Adam, the very proper name Adam means in Hebrew, man. God called man, man. And in Hebrew, the language of divine revelation, that word is Adam. It becomes a proper noun. This is why it's so important that God reveals through his word that Christ, the Son of God, is also Son of Man because he fulfills all things in his person. It is necessary that the Son of God, the one who comes to save us, also be the Son of Man. He then is the new Adam, which we will come back to in a few minutes. So, God speaks in Scripture in several places about the fact that, that the human race, that many, that his family, are united in one body. We know this to be the language of the New Testament. We are all members of one body, the mystical body of Christ, the new Adam. But God was already speaking about this from the very beginning. 
Think also of the fact that God, several times in Scripture, in revealing His plan of salvation, will speak about the many generations, the many descendants, the many nations, how they receive, in a latent kind of way, the promise because they are in the loins of the one to whom God speaks His truth. So that, for example, in the loins of Abraham, when God makes the promise, to him and to his descendants, in potency, so to speak, in the loins of Abraham, all nations receive that promise. In the loins of Abraham was the Levitical priesthood. That's why St. Paul will explain in his letter to the Hebrews that when Abraham pays tithes to Melchizedek, who is a figure of Christ, the Levitical priesthood is already paying tithes to Christ because Levi was in the loins of Abraham. So there is this beautiful mystery, the very word potentia, potency, from which we get the word in English potential. God is always speaking about this potency, this fruitfulness, this plan which, for God, because He knows the future, He knows what He will bring about, that plan, in a sense, is already present in a moment in history when God speaks and reveals that truth. So in Adam, then, we have the whole human race. When Adam sins, all men are implicated in that sin. For us to understand it, let's just take a few analogies. They won't be perfect, but we can nevertheless apply their logic. Adam, as we know, was established in original holiness and justice, not only for himself. His gifts, his holiness, his justice were for all of his descendants, too. He was to pass on the perfection that God had established him in. So, in a sense, we can say that Adam laid hold of heaven. Adam possessed heaven. Adam lived in God and God in Adam from the very beginning. We could say that he possessed heaven. Imagine then Adam high up in the sky, because we tend to think of heaven as high up in the sky, Imagine him clinging to this very high cloud, or if you want, clinging to a star, clinging to heaven itself. And in the loins of Adam is the whole human race. When Adam rebels against God, he rejects the author of life, and in doing so, chooses death. He destroys himself, he destroys his eternal life by rejecting the author of life. When Adam lets go of heaven, all of his descendants fall with him. He lets go along with everyone who comes after him. When he lets go of that cloud, he falls to earth. When he lets go of that star, if you will, he falls into the deep, dark abyss of eternal death. Now it is a truth, a principle of philosophy, that no effect 
can be greater than its cause. We cannot give to another what we do not have. The imperfect cannot produce the perfect. It's not possible. Think of how in all of the research and recent knowledge that genetic science has been able to, to establish, we know that if someone has genetic defects, let's say the person is missing chromosomes, that person cannot guarantee a perfect descendancy. That person cannot pass on what they don't have in the first place. So when Adam falls, he implicates all mankind in his sin. Thanks for listening to Real Presence Radio. If you are just tuning in, Dr. George of Sacred Heart Productions is going through the New Testament letters from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study Program. For lessons, study guides, and more information, please visit sacredheartproductions.org. In this next segment, Dr. George will be continuing the following topic, the first Adam, the last Adam. And now, back to Dr. George. So, when Adam falls, he implicates all mankind in his sin. How is he affected, we ask? Let us look at the gifts that God gives to Adam in creating him, to Adam and Eve. Both are recipients of these gifts. In the first place, Adam receives the supernatural gift of grace. He has God's own life in him and he lives in God. The supernatural gift of grace is lost when he rejects the author of life. And so it's a natural and supernatural consequence that he die. He also received what are called preternatural gifts. And that prefix preter means above or beyond or outside the bounds of. Preternatural gifts are gifts that were not strictly due to us according to our nature. In other words, God didn't have to give these gifts to us. He gave us in our human nature all the gifts that he had to give us in order for that nature to be human. But preternatural gifts are extras above and beyond. And these included things like corporal immortality. The body would never die. The soul, of course, is immortal. Every soul that God creates will live forever. The soul of every human person is immortal. That soul may live in, in blessedness in heaven with God at the end of time, or if the soul rejects God, the soul will live in damnation and misery and pain and suffering for all of eternity, but the soul indeed lives forever. So Adam and Eve had corporal immortality. They also had infused knowledge. They were very enlightened. They also had what we call integrity of being, and that their whole being, body and soul, flesh and spirit, was completely ordered. The flesh was properly subject to the soul. Everything was in its right order. Nothing was disordered. Adam and Eve did not have concupiscence. Also, they had what is sometimes called impassibility, freedom from suffering. 
all of the preternatural gifts also were lost due to the fall. The natural gifts, the gifts of human nature, that by which we describe ourselves as being made in the image and likeness of God, are things like the higher powers of the soul, our intellect, our will, our memory, and the lower capacity of the soul, emotions, the passions, and so on. These were not destroyed, of course, but they were wounded. All of these gifts were damaged. And as a result, man, now with original sin on his soul and the effects of original sin, we have intellects which are darkened, we have memories which are imperfect, we have wills which are disordered, and we know that by grace we continue to struggle in our lifetime, that we have to work with an intellect that is sometimes weak and slow and imperfect. The same with our memory. Even our will, even when we know the good by our intellect and we desire in our heart to choose the good, we can't always do it because of concupiscence. We are wounded. We live in a state whereby the flesh and spirit are in a kind of a battle. It's not that the flesh is evil or bad, but there is a disorder that has ensued as a result of original sin. Now, Adam and Eve committed personal sin, but original sin is not personal sin. We commit personal sins, but the original sin that we have in our soul when we are created, when we are born into this life, is not personal sin. It is transmitted to us by propagation. In other words, it is called sin, as the church says, only in an analogical sense. Original sin is contracted, not committed. It is a state, not an act. We ask ourselves, why did God, who is all-powerful, all-loving, all-knowing, why did he not prevent Adam from sinning, knowing how destructive it would be? It reverberated the consequences of man, who's at the summit of the created order, reverberated down throughout the entire created order. Remember, the whole created order is summed up in our very being. Saint Leo the Great, Pope Saint Leo the Great, who lived in the fifth century, explains that Christ's inexpressible grace gave us better blessings than those which the demons envy took away. We got something even better. From the beginning centuries of the church on, all the fathers, all the doctors, all the saints of the church have pondered this mystery of the order of creation, the fall and its consequences, and the ultimate result, which is that God himself came down in the person of the Son and saved us. And they can all only conclude that we ended up with something far better. In other words, as St. Thomas Aquinas says, God permits evil only in order to bring about a greater good. God, who is all-powerful, all-knowing, perfectly good, simply would not allow something terrible like this to happen to his beloved man unless he were at the same time 
using this as a pathway to something greater. If God could not do something greater or could not restore us, he would not allow it to happen in the first place. There is this matter, this, this marvelous thing of how God constantly reaches out to man, offering him, even through this terrible moment, something better if, if we will simply accept that new plan, if we will simply accept that grace that he now offers us. This is why St. Paul, towards the end of chapter 5, speaks of how, he says, however much sin increased, grace was always greater. Wherever sin abounds on earth, grace always abounds the more. We still have to accept it in our free will, but the point is that God is constantly reaching out to man, saving man, until our last breath that we take on earth. He does not stop loving us. This is what we sing in that glorious exalted that the church sings every Easter vigil, the first celebration of the resurrection in the liturgical year. And we sing, oh, happy fault. We now call the fall, the fault of Adam and Eve, a happy one. Why? Because, as the church sings, it gained for us so great a redeemer. It is marvelous. God became man, as St. Paul is going to say later in this very letter, that God has imprisoned all men in disobedience so that he can show mercy to us all. It's a beautiful part of the mystery of God's love. We go back to the book of Genesis. As soon as man falls, God essentially announces the new Adam. The gospel is announced almost the moment that man falls from grace and loses his life, his eternal life. This is why the church in her liturgy of the Eucharist has that beautiful phrase in her prayer where she says in reference to what God revealed in the book of Genesis, you did not abandon him, Adam, man, you did not abandon him to the power of death. Right after Adam and Eve turn away from God, God's first reaching out comes in the form of the question, where are you? God is searching for his beloved man. And then, of course, he reveals, in a veiled, mysterious way, he speaks of how Christ, his son, it's in veiled language, will crush the head of the serpent. So there is already this announcement of the new Adam who, by becoming obedient, so he is going to correct what Adam and Eve didn't do, he will be obedient to God the Father. So obedient, he will be obedient even unto death, death on a cross, and that thereby he will make amends superabundantly for the disobedience of Adam. So we have this already in the very beginning, St. Paul says in this letter. This is why there is no comparison between the free gift and the offense. He says a few verses earlier, through one man, sin came into the world, and through sin, death, and thus death has spread through the whole human race, because everyone has sin. And what is God's response to this? His response is 
that he announces the one who is to come, who will change all this. That is why the church so clearly says that it is only in the mystery of the Word made flesh that the mystery of man truly becomes clear. St. Peter Chrysologus, speaking of the matter that we are dealing with in this first question, says that St. Paul tells us aptly that the human race takes its origin from two men. That is the point he is making here in chapter 5, Adam and Christ. The first Adam was made by the last Adam. All things are made by Christ and for him, and, as St. Paul will say later in his letter to the Colossians, that in him all things hold together. In him everything is created, in him everything is restored, in him everything lives and exists and continues to hold together. The first Adam was made by the last. The second Adam, Christ, stamped his image on the first Adam when he created him. That is why he took on himself the role and the name of the first Adam. Christ, Son of Man. Scripture says, St. Paul says, Christ is the new Adam. In order that he might not lose what was made in his own image. God loved us so much. He didn't want to lose the creature that was made in his very image, made like him, made to live with him forever, made to share in his life. God was not about to lose us. So he himself comes in the person of the Son to save us. What a mystery this is that the second Adam is already, in a sense, he's present in the mystery of the first Adam, who is made in the image of the second Adam. But since the first Adam is only made in the image of another Adam, a greater Adam, an eternal Adam, that Adam is not actually the first. Yes, he's the first earthly man. But Christ, the new Adam, is the first and the last. That is why he is so clear to say, I am the Alpha and the Omega. St. Paul is talking about the same mystery at the end of his letter to the Corinthians when he says, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. But the last man, the new Adam, became a life-giving spirit. And it is his spirit given to Adam in the first place, and his spirit which is given anew to Adam when Christ, after his resurrection, goes down into the abode of the dead to rescue Adam and all of his descendants, because that is where all the just were. There's a beautiful reading in the Office of Readings of the Church that we pray every Holy Saturday. It's from an ancient homily in the church, and it's about how the person writing it imagines that moment in the order of redemption when Christ, after he rises from the dead, goes down into the abode of the dead to bring the just with him so that when he breaks open the gates of heaven, as the church fathers say that when Christ is raised up to heaven in his flesh, the gates of heaven have to break open. They have to break open before the humanity of Christ. And he brings with him then 
all of the just. St. Paul then in this letter, his letter to the Corinthians goes on to say that the first man being made of earth is of course earthly by nature. But the second man is from heaven. This is why the earthly man is the pattern for earthly people, but the heavenly man for heavenly ones. And so he says, as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so too we shall bear the likeness of the heavenly one. And this is what happens. This is the mystery that we lay hold of in the sacrament of baptism. Thanks for listening to Real Presence Radio. If you are just tuning in, Dr. George of Sacred Heart Productions is going through the New Testament letters from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study Program. For lessons, study guides, and more information, please visit sacredheartproductions.org. In this final segment, Dr. George will be covering Baptism, Death to Sin, and Life in Christ. And now, back to Dr. George. It is by baptism, then, that we enter into the life and death of Christ, and we possess the mystery that he accomplished, that he realized for our sake. In his becoming man, the mystery of the Incarnation, in his life on earth, and what he accomplished through the Paschal mystery, his suffering, death, and resurrection. Jesus is very clear in telling us that the forgiveness of sins, that the new creation that we are destined to be, is tied to baptism. Do you recall how in chapter 3 of the Gospel of St. John, Jesus says, In all truth I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of heaven unless he is born of water and spirit. He says what is born of human nature is human. What is born of spirit is spirit. And if we want eternal life, we have to be born anew in spirit. Nicodemus had difficulty understanding this. He said, am I supposed to go back into my mother's womb again and be born again? No, but yes. In Holy Mother Church, we are born from the womb of the church, the waters of baptism. And we now undergo a new birth and a new life, and we become a new creation. Jesus says, do not be surprised then when I say that you must be born from above. In divine revelation, our Lord is very clear in tying the forgiveness of sins to faith and baptism. You remember how at the end of the Gospel of St. Mark, Jesus, after he has died and risen from the dead, comes back and says to his apostles, go out to the whole world, proclaim the gospel to all creation. This is what we too are supposed to be doing in our very persons, that through the witness of our lives, through the fact that we are now configured to Christ, died and risen, that we are supposed to be announcing in our very being the gospel. We are supposed to be announcing the good news to all of creation by how we live. In a sense, you could say we're announcing it even to the, the stars and the mountains 
and the waters that run over the earth, the animals, the plants, because of how we understand things, how we use them, our stewardship over them, how we direct all things back to God in reverence, in holiness of mind and heart. So Jesus says, proclaim the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized shall be saved, and whoever does not believe shall be condemned. Our Lord ties the forgiveness of sins and eternal life to faith and baptism. Therefore, we have to conclude with the Church that baptism is the first and chief sacrament of the forgiveness of sins. It's the doorway to salvation and the doorway to all the other sacraments of the Church. Why? Because it unites us to Christ, who died for our sins and rose for our justification, so that we may walk in newness of life. The sacrament of baptism is called baptism because it comes from a Greek word which means to plunge or to immerse in. And in the ancient church, people often, in celebrating the sacrament, would go down into the waters. There would be a complete immersion. They also use the pouring of water overhead. That suffices too. But the early Christians liked the immersion rite of baptism, that form of it, simply because it bespoke that complete immersion in the death and new life of Christ. Remember that God has been speaking about life, his life and our life in him from the beginning. And because man turned away from God, man could no longer live in the life of the Holy Spirit, in the water, so to speak, of God. Man didn't have that capacity. He didn't live in the water, the life of God, of the Holy Spirit. But instead he turned away and he became sinful and corrupted. That is why we have the particular signs through which God speaks. The flood, of course, is a real thing, a historical event. But God's signs, the way he speaks to man, those signs always reflect the greater spiritual truths and realities. And so, God sent flood waters over the earth at the time of the flood in order to give life. They appeared to bring about nothing but death, but what they did do is that they purified and renewed or regenerated what was dead and old and corrupted, and out of that was a new earth, was a new creation, so to speak. You notice that it's those who have faith who are saved, of course, in the ark. God is speaking through all of this. Christ, in fulfilling his paschal mystery, takes our death upon himself. He goes down into the abyss of death, into the floodwaters. He dies, but remember he is a divine person, and so he is raised up from death. He dies, but death is not definitive for Christ because he is God, because he is divine. So that when Christ rises from the dead, there is this mystery, both the Father raises up the Son, but also the Son reveals that he has the power to lay his life down and to pick it up again. The Father and the Son are one. 
he rises from the dead and in rising breaks the chains of death and not only breaks them, his rising destroys death. Christ's rising puts an end to death. Death does not have the last word now. His life has the final word. Now we have to die because it's a consequence of sin. God takes and turns this curse into a blessing. He doesn't take away physical death. It actually becomes a blessing. But when we go into the waters of baptism, we become configured. We unite ourselves to the Paschal Mystery of Christ through faith. And what happens is that we undergo a certain kind of death. All that death is and means is completed in the person of Christ. And in turn, God raises us up. We come up out of the waters into eternal life with Christ. We already enter the resurrection through baptism. We go down into death, but it's Christ who took on the curse of death, and he broke the chains. That is why once we are baptized, and once we are in the state of grace, and presuming we die in the state of grace, death has no more sting. It has no power over us. Death can't touch us because we have united ourselves to the bodily death of Christ, and now we are a risen person with the person of Christ. That's why we're not afraid of death. It's simply a passage into eternal life. We now pass over. We pass over secure in the person of Christ, hidden in the person of Christ. That's the only way anyone can pass over death. He must be secured in the person of Christ. This is why we must have faith in the person of Jesus Christ. Then we securely pass over. Now in this we are raised up, of course, to new life. But this death then means it points not only to the physical death, our corporal death now no longer has any power over us, our eternal death is completely reversed. So the good news, remember we said earlier that the doctrine of original sin is, so to speak, the reverse of the good news. So now the gravest effect of original sin is reversed. We now enter eternal life. So the physical death has no curse on us. The eternal death is reversed. It has no curse on us. But in order to rise with Christ, we have to, we put to death in ourselves sin, all sin. It is so critical to understand because why did Christ die? He took sin to himself and allowed sin to put him to death. And when we unite ourselves to that death of our Lord, we are uniting our mind, heart, soul, body, strength, the way we live on earth, everything is united to our death to sin. In other words, sin can have no part in the life of the resurrected person, the life of the risen person. As scripture says, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Therefore, as the church goes on to tell us in light of that passage, we must appreciate the magnitude of the gift God gives us in the sacrament of baptism 
actually the church in this instance speaks of the sacraments of Christian initiation, baptism, the Eucharist, and confirmation. But with regard to our present question, we're speaking of baptism. We must learn to appreciate the magnitude of the gift that God has given us in the sacrament of baptism in order to grasp the degree to which sin is excluded for him who has put on Christ. Sin can have no place in our lives. This is why St. Paul says, chapter 6, you cannot have forgotten that all of us, when we were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death, were buried with him, so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the Father's glorious power, we too should begin to live a new life. If we have been joined to him by dying a death like his, so we shall be by a resurrection like his, realizing that our former self was crucified with him, so that the self which belonged to sin should be destroyed and we should be freed from the slavery of sin. That's why a few verses later he talks about we must decide who will be our master. He says, if you are a slave to sin, if you go on committing sin, you become a slave to sin then, which leads to death. You are enslaved to death. You are not free at all. This can happen even after we're baptized. We have to know who our master is. He says, or you can become the slave of obedience, which leads to saving justice. But remember, the truth sets us free. Our slavery and obedience is not an oppressive kind of slavery. It is the most liberating kind of attachment to our master that we can possibly imagine. The more we choose the good, the freer we become. The more established we become in our freedom. So we think about this in light of the whole profound mystery. You notice that at the end of question two, there is a parenthetical reference to paragraph 197 of the Catechism. It is there because the Church invites us to ponder the mysteries of our faith, in this particular case, the mystery of Adam, original holiness and justice, the fall, the consequences of the fall, and the Redeemer that God sends us, and then the means of salvation, of entering into the mystery of Christ through baptism, if we understand this in light of what we profess in the creeds, we can speak here of the Apostles' Creed, that earliest creed of the Church, or we can speak of the Nicene Creed, which is a little more defined and explicit, but they both are summaries of one and the same mystery of our faith. And by being aware of what we say when we profess the creed, we often will profess them, we profess them by memory. If we pray the rosary, for example, we profess the, the Apostles' Creed, and we know it, we've been saying it so many years that we can rattle it off without really thinking much about what we're saying. The same is of the Nicene Creed, which we, which we proclaim as a church, as a body of Christ every Sunday. And we proclaim it, but every phrase, Every word of every phrase is so important. It speaks about this magnificent mystery. That's why the Church says to say the creed with faith 
thinking about what we're saying in each phrase, is to enter into communion with God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and also with the whole church, which transmits the faith to us and in whose midst we believe. The church is the guardian of the sacred deposit of our faith. When we say the faith, the faith is a summary of everything we believe. It's a summary of the history of salvation. As St. Ambrose says, in speaking of this, he says, the credo is our spiritual seal. It is our heart's meditation. It is our ever-present guardian. It is unquestionably the treasure of our soul. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study on Real Presence Radio. Lessons, study guides, and additional materials can be found online at sacredheartproductions.org. Please tune in next time while we continue the New Testament letters. Dr. George will be covering Romans chapter 7 and chapter 8, which include the following two topics. The Old Law, Imperfect but Good, and second, the New Law, Spirit, Grace, and Freedom. Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study is designed to help people understand Scripture in light of sacred tradition. All lessons include related questions and relevant readings from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Knowing the Scriptures program is produced by Sacred Heart Productions, whose mission is to proclaim Christ and His love for His Bride, the Church.
Hey.